0: possession of the mainframe. We thought our quest would end. We thought it was the goal, the conclusion. That its power, its answers would set us free from this life on the road, this life of death. This life by the blade. But it was only the beginning. That damned machine it shows you things, things you cannot unsee, things you cannot unknow; and in time we found ourselves in that blasphemous mountain pass, staring up at those black crags, escarpments against the glowing sky, and that hideous house, that house that had plagued our dreams so long, now material before me and my companions. And our nerves were like melted butter Sliding down the rocks Lost in fear and dread But unable to stop our trudging feet From growing closer to those Terrible mouth-like doors Windows-like eyes Dilapidated, mostly stone With old ebony wood Shingles piled about and even one chimney toppled in some lost century. Why we would enter such a place, I cannot tell you. Why only I survived of my group, my party of adventurers who are were skilled, more skilled fighters and dungeoneers than I'll ever be. I don't have the answers to these questions. I'm sure that damned machine has the answers. But as we delved deeper, drawn ever forward by the crackling and the brimstone smoke of some great fireplace which always seemed to be just beyond the next wall. As we delved, we discovered the darkness. We found the reason it had led us here. That damned machine has no care for mankind, no care for human souls. It is only a mainframe, an abacus, a bean counter. It knows cosmic outcomes we shudder to even, even consider. And through that red window to hell, we all looked and our eyes were burned from their sockets. Save myself whose only armor was cowardice, for I turned, and from that place, as it collapsed into a crater of smoldering ash, I ran. And now my cowardice is all that keeps me company. Save that thing in the corner of my bower. That little cubic machine clicking and whirring, showing me things.
1: Welcome back, my programmy peoples. Welcome back to Runehammer. My name's Ingrid Bernal. I'm also known as Hanker Infernile. I'm uh, up here in Barholm in the mountains of Eardrum, just coming at you with another transmission. Of the big old podcast. Welcome to Runehammer. Welcome new patrons. There are always a few more joining the shield wall. We will be the last defense of this world against the terrors that await below. So welcome everybody. Thank you, uh, ongoing patrons, for your support. And this is episode twenty-nine, I believe, or is this episode thirty? I don't know. We're in the high twenties, thirties. We're we're like a. We're, uh, this might be dirty thirty. Anyway, welcome back to the podcast, guys. Today, we're going to dive into um, a little bit different something or other, a little something something, that is a sort of a counterpoint or the other side to um, today's YouTube transmission. So they kind of go together like a peanut butter and jelly kind of thing, because I feel there's a lot more depth here um, than I could get to in my sort of hour and a half live stream. So I want to throw it in the podcast for all you awesome people. So that you can get a little bit deeper into the thinking behind uh, my latest little adventure concept called Hell's Hearth. Now, mechanically speaking, Hell's Hearth is a lot like all the adventures that I put forward for you guys. It's straightforward. It's kind of a, you know a series of straight line events with some possible outcomes. it, it isn't some kind of massive subtle, nuanced web of truths that is slowly unveiled through deep role-playing. <laughs> now, I always believe, you guys know how I believe that, uh, you know, the old phrase, danger is the great unifier. I really believe that lots of action and lots of combat and lots of pressing the group forward is what drives great role-play. doesn't supplant it. And so if you guys notice that my adventures have a lot of this kind of what I call the water slide effect, you know, where you're, you're tugged along by danger and by inevitable truth and by what has to be done and you know situations you can't avoid and so you're pushed forward. This doesn't mean that there's so much combat and so much action that there's no role playing besides one-liners. Not at all. In fact, I find that the more dangerous and the more pressing an adventure is, the more players get into their characters. That sedation and free time and a sort of loosey-goosey sense of danger are what pull players out of their characters. Even though it seems counterintuitive, it seems like oh people are going to role play more if I pose these situations of intrigue to them or if I pose uh, NPCs with deep dialogue and nuance and hidden clues in what they say and this is going to induce a lot of role playing, I find that the opposite tends to be true, is that theatrics and voice acting with a great majority of players or at least the players that I've experienced, I can only speak from my own experience here as a DM, but that theatrics themselves can actually be off-putting to some players as far as delving into their characters, because that feeling of a spotlight being on their acting and their their voice capability and their role play actually can make them clam up a little bit. Whereas if the focus is on action, they feel like that their sort of acting capability isn't quite so much on trial, and they a- accidentally get far more into character. Now, that's a little bit of playing reverse psychology on them, right? But that's okay. Whatever it takes to bring that fun from the table, I say. And remember, it's all about matching your table. If your table responds to your NPCs with incredible soliloquies and monologues, with their own monologues and epiphanies, then by all means, unleash. But Hell's Hearth is another one of these adventures that that I really enjoy running, which is kind of a series of dilemmas, that uh, cascade into te- more and more terrible failures and lead into a, a really difficult final dilemma or situation. Um, I think that this format of adventure is conducive to experimenting with new types of adventure creation mechanics. And that's a bit of, a, a, of a, a mouthful. And so for today's podcast, I wanted to talk about two things. Adventure creation mechanic, especially the one used for Hell's Hearth. And secondly, I wanted to talk about Hell's Hearth itself. Now, so often here on the mainframe, the stuff that I like to discuss that you guys seem to choose when, you know, we kind of do surveys and so forth, is very theory-oriented. Now, theory being a catch-all word here for we're not talking about a specific scenario, piece of content, or piece of lore in a world. In fact, no, we're talking about theoretical constructs which can help any type of game or any piece of content be better or help you in your creative process, right? But just for today, uh, after we talk about creation mechanics really quick, I would like to just delve into Hell's Heart a little bit and explore what kind of nuances might be hidden in this adventure that don't show in the mechanical design of the rooms and the monsters and the dangers. So first of all, the creation method that I used for Hell's Hearth was actually recently developed by me and Kelsey Dion, who are working together on Blood and Snow. And yeah, there's a little bit of a reveal for you guys. Kelsey Dion, the primary writer for the Arcane Library, is officially my collaborator on the next ICRPG, sort of large scale release, which is a full setting book called Blood and Snow, which takes place in the Ice Age. Now, as we've been working on it, we've been looking for new and innovative ways to write content for ICRPG that's more compact, more potent, and allows for some more rolling and some more uh, variation between plays of a given adventure, especially after seeing how much people have played Last Flight of the Red Sword or how much people have played Doom Vault. I see this uh, could be a useful thing, is that if you're going to run an adventure two or three times, it would ni- be nice to see it play out slightly different. Beyond player actions, because of course player actions are always going to make it different. But I mean intrinsically different. And so we developed this technique. And the technique basically breaks down like this. When you're designing an adventure, you really have four parts. You have how it begins, which is fixed, set in stone, written by the dungeon master. Then you have how it unfolds which is highly variable, determined by player actions and by role tables. Then you have how it concludes, which is fixed. And finally you have what happens next, which is completely player choice that is not rolled. Okay, so let's break them down each one. How it begins, all right? So this is the intro that you write. And like a very small paragraph is a great way to do it. A very small paragraph often known as a read aloud and you're just coming right at the players saying, this is where we're at. Now, it, if, if you're doing your homework, and this links to a previous session. If you're in a campaign, if it's a one shot, you don't have to worry about it and so on and so forth. But this is a descriptive, evocative, moody little piece of text that puts them in a space, gives them a visual. And most importantly of all, you guys know where I stand on this, gives them a purpose, an inevitable purpose, a driving purpose that is now, that is here, that is unavoidable, that must be done. This is all accomplished by the how it begins portion of your adventure design. And you write this sucker down. You decide, because you're the dungeon master, this is your special little territory. And you read it to them. They have no say in this, save what they may have said or done in previous sessions. This is a nice little place for a DM to live. You get complete authority. You're a god here in the how it begins section. Okay, the next one. How it plays out. How it unfolds. What happens. Okay, This, you can drive by a roll table. You can have 12 possible events that are the guts of your adventure, and you either agree with players, time determines it, or you agree with yourself. You're going to do, say, four rolls on this table and stitch them together in a way that's going to create the series of events that unfold. This is an exciting way to run an adventure, partially because you get different run-throughs each time, but also because it makes... the the play session as exciting for the DM as it does for players, because the DM is going to be discovering. The DM isn't moving through a fixed set of content. They are surprised by this role, and you will be, even if you know the role table and you think you see what's coming and stuff. There's moments of surprise that are going to push your DMing ability, and that makes the session more fun for you. Also, you get to see how players are interacting, how it's all sort of stitching together, which you're going to have to improvise a little bit. So you gotta know your whole truth to make sure you can stitch together these unfolding pieces. Now, if you're designing an adventure and you're setting up this 12-piece table, then what I would advise to you is use your sort of, uh, you know, a rule of rhythm. So if you have 12 things to fill in, don't do 10 combat encounters. (laughs) Show rhythm. So do combat, mystery, tone setter, um, you know, monologue, combat, tone setter, combat. You see what I mean? Just like some nice staccato, strange rhythm, right? You don't call a sandworm if you walk without, uh, without perfect rhythm, right? And you want to do the same thing here with your adventure. So you get your roll table filled in, you bring them in with the intro, you start unfolding it based on the rolls, and you move through the action. Okay, the next piece is how it concludes. Now, how it concludes is also fixed. And in the case of Hell's Hearth, I know that this adventure is going to end down at this great fireplace, which is a portal to hell. I know that part, and that's gonna happen. The only way players can really avoid that from happening is to completely flee the adventure, and I might even block their ability to do that. So once again, I get to decide the start, and I get to decide sort of where they're gonna end up, and this is what we call the pool at the end of the water slide, right? I I build that architecture. I'm gonna slide you down all these twists and turns, which we don't really know what they are. But I do know there that that pool is there and you're going to splash into it and everybody's going to laugh. So that's the conclusion. OK, there's this big battle and there's a portal to hell and whatever. But what you don't know, and this is the biggest black box of all adventure design and especially of a session design. And I cannot s- emphasize this enough. The 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 impact, the the effect on players' mindset of how, how good an effect this moment has. And this is what happens next, and it is completely up to the players. So you do your conclusion, and let's take Hell's Hearth as our example again. So you're at this great fireplace that's like hundreds of feet below this ancient house, and this fireplace has been the blood uh, the blood rite of this family who has been cursed with its possession for centuries, and it's this this portal that Asmodeus is using to send demons into the world, and this whole... Ah, this whole thing, right, and then confrontation stuff. Okay, as that concludes, and sort of that moment when a little bit of quiet settles on the world, then you ask your players, and time freezes in the world, what do you want to do next? It's completely up to you now. We've, we've done what I hoped for for the night. We've done the, the content that I designed, and now we do the part of tabletop RPGs, especially DIY RPGs, that can never be replaced by any other type of game in the world which is that I honestly, with a completely open notebook and heart, (laughs) ask my players, what do you want to do next? And they have absolute freedom to say anything at that moment because we're not going to play what they say. The next time we play is going to be a week or more later when I've had time to prepare for what they chose, what they told me they want to do. And this is how you get free will in your games for your players. You don't just give them this big blank sandbox. I mean, that's a method you could use. But I think it's far more effective to present them with an episode, almost like an episode of a TV show. But then they decide what the theme or the Thrust of the next episode of the show is going to be They don't get to decide all the nuance and all the details But they get to decide what they want to do Who they are, why they're here, what they want to accomplish Maybe they don't want to battle the big bad yet Because they want to go find this artifact Maybe they want to go seek out answers from this old sage Maybe they just want to return to town and rest for a few weeks Maybe they need to, you know, take one of their sisters back to her hometown So she's safe from all this craziness Whatever Whatever Maybe they want to plunge right through the portal into hell and confront Asmodeus himself. But all that freedom is theirs, and this is the black box at the end of your session that you can never plan for and just let yourself not plan for it. Just let them be them. Then the next morning when you wake up after this session, you can say, oh, man, they want to go through the portal. I have no idea how am I going to run like a hell encounter and how am I going to get them out of there and what's going to happen? Okay, well, now you're into your next session plan. But they decided it, not you. So using that method, I stumbled into Hell's Hearth. I mean, obviously we're, we're writing an adventure too for Blood and Snow, which is coming along well using the same method, but I wanted to do it live in front of everybody using this method to once again show that, that exposure or that authenticity that I really, really believe in when it comes to Runehammer. I really believe that this is missing in some ways in our in our hobby is full exposure of the struggle portion not just the cool stuff but the struggle portion and this is why i've been uh, sort of trying to learn torchbearer is i looked high and low far and wide could not find any realistic detailed resources on how to play this at the table just could not find it and what that says to me is that that authenticity is a little bit missing. Now, you can fly, find actual plays, but it's sort of theater of the mind using these big sort of checklists. And, and I don't see like improv level play what I would want. So I could mechanically improvise using that system. And yet I'm really, really intrigued by it. I think with the popper teaching technique, it could be super fun. I think its weakness is that it's taught in a bit of a difficult fashion. But I think what's underlying it is brilliant. It's a bit arbitrary in places, like, you know, looking at a chart to see what happens is never that fun, right? You want to use a system to improvise and create what happens. And so I want to find that threshold with Torchbearer. And as I do it, I want to broadcast it live so that the struggle of our hobby is revealed. The struggle of our hobby is often looking at a new rulebook or trying to up your game as a DM as far as rules knowledge and being a little bit head scratchy and not being sure. But that honestly pales in comparison to the challenge of being creative in an ongoing fashion, making adventures, making NPCs, creating campaigns, keeping players intrigued and keeping them coming back to the table. That is the real focus of why I do what I do. So now, looking past the mechanical elements of creating Hell's Hearth, and some of the visual elements, which were on YouTube, I'd like to take a few minutes to muse about the whole truth. Now, Hell's Hearth, to me, is interesting because obviously it rifts very heavily off the themes in the Darkest Dungeon video game and themes found in several of H.P. Lovecraft's story, which are this sort of hereditary doom, you know, the ape creatures under the house, or the Dunwich horror, which is called forth from another dimension, or the rats in the walls, or even dreams in the witch house, where these strange glyphs are hidden under the wallpaper in this attic and drive a man insane. Ancient and terrible truths that are borne up by weary and sometimes evil families. I find this theme to be very, very interesting and very rife with possibility. And the possibilities aren't just that I'm gonna have a bunch of monsters, aren't that I have a very intriguing reason to have caverns and chambers under a house, not just those, but the motivations of the characters. Okay, so let's take Hell's Hearth, for example. I really have one key NPC, who is uh, Aldous Vexmore. Now, Aldous Vexmore is a lot like my character in Beneath the Door, right? He sort of, at some point, became slightly insane because of this evil influence and started doing insane things with a strange motivation, which was to help the evil, right? And this is another common HP Lovecraft theme is that A simple presence. It isn't even really ever proven as being powerful or supernatural, but there's some kind of presence that drives the mind to either seek the presence out or to to help it or to make offerings to it or listen to its voices. And this subtlety and strangeness is how I would want to portray Aldous Vexmore. He isn't Strahd. He isn't Lord Soth. He isn't a conqueror of worlds. He's a fallen lord. And as a fallen lord, he does have these sort of moments of lucidity where he sees outside the madness and probably falls to tears. He's seen his own family once at a height, completely destroyed by this obsession of his or by this evil presence. Right? It's like the Amityville story. The family gets in their new house and everything seems great, but the house itself eats them up. It doesn't eat them up because teeth appear in the walls. It eats them by turning them against each other, by giving them bad ideas, dark intentions, visions of horrors. This is what happens in Hell's Hearth. And so by the time the players encounter Aldous Vexmore, yes, he is their enemy because he is in large part, the source of this ongoing problem. He is the harbinger of whatever doom will rise from beneath this house. But he's more than that. He's a tragic character. He's paid the ultimate price for this stupid evil force. He hates it more than anyone. He's the most trapped by it. And this is a big part of your whole truth because there's a nuance in this character that can be exploited by players. And this is why... The whole truth is always so important, especially if you want to develop NPCs that have an interesting linchpin to them. The whole truth can become somewhat useless if it's beyond the hero's reach. An example of this might be uh, the somewhat frequent obsession of dungeon masters and determining the pantheon of their world, right? Well, I'm making a world and I need to know who the gods are. Okay, well, there's this sort of god of iron and then there's a god of the sun and stuff like this. And Okay, all this stuff is somewhat cool, somewhat interesting to write down, but honestly, totally beyond the reach of the players. But if you were to during world building say, well, I have this priest of the sun who actually has been frustrated because... The, the church of sun worshipers is actually in great decline. And this priest has done terrible things to keep the church alive. Things that are against the very precepts of sun worshipers. And he encounters the players. Now we're talking some interesting stuff. Now I need to know what the precepts of the sun god are. Because this priest has gone against them. And the players now have access to use this knowledge or to discover it in a way that could be a linchpin between having to confront or not confront this priest. And the same is true with Aldous Vexmore, but in an even bigger way. In the right scenario, Aldous could help you to destroy the manor. And in the wrong scenario, you could conjure in him such an evil god. Right? It could be completed, this cycle of it overtaking him. And this is like the moment in Amityville Horror when the father takes up the axe and the dark force in the basement has completely dominated his will, and with this fire axe in hand, he's going up the stairs with the most terrible intentions for his family. He is overtaken by the evil. The exact process, mechanics, role-playing, and timing involved in whether or not Aldous Vexmore is overtaken by this evil force is the very crux of Hell's Hearth, not the room designs, Not how many demons are pouring out of the the, the portal. Not how many magmans are crawling around in the cavern. No. That is not the the juxtaposition that makes it exciting. Not tentacles. (laughs) But rather, the thread by which Aldous Vexmore's sanity and righteousness hangs. Now, if that is not enough, As far as the Vexmore family or the manor, you may want to add one or two NPCs, and one could be the caretaker. The caretaker is always a fantastic character that is very easy for people to imagine because it's such a trope, but can be great to provide an outside view of the family, even though the caretaker is sort of part of the family. can be a great way to reveal some of the family history. Another classic is the young member of the family. It could be the boy or the daughter. And this represents the good side of Aldous Vexwar. This represents the not-yet-spoiled side. And maybe she's been running around this house, poor thing, hiding in every nook and cranny like Newt in Aliens, waiting for the day that some savior would come. Or maybe her, young, her youth and her innocence made her easy pickings for the demonic force, and she actually is where the most evil power resides. More a trope, trope, I mean, of of modern horror to do that kind of move. To hide the evil in a little girl. Very modern-feeling story twist there. But knowing these whole truths about Hell's Hearth and about Vexmore Manor is what's going to give you this foreboding as the players are just walking up the path. So in my intro for the podcast today, you heard my concept, which is that the mainframe actually leads the characters here. I'm starting to actually integrate the RPG mainframe into my world. And so they recover this thing and they think, oh, wow, now we have all the answers and now we're going to be kings and stuff. No, actually, it shows you dark truths like Samara in the ring, truths you can't escape that you're, that beckon you, almost like how all the, um, the, the pilgrims are beckoned. Devil's Tower in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? These dreams and visions plague them so much to relieve the anxiety they have to go there, even though they don't even know why, but they're drawn there. And the mainframe draws the heroes here. And in a way, I'm now starting to manipulate the mainframe, much like a warp shell, which is this entity that knows where threats to the cosmos are starting to boil and sends heroes there, against their will usually. And with all that in consideration, the players are walking up to this house with these sort of dark, you know, visions or or dark feelings. But the joy of it is, if you know this whole truth about Aldous Vexmore and his sanity hanging by a thread, about his daughter in whom the evil resides, about the caretaker who is just cursed to live there, maybe the caretaker's been here for like a thousand years, and cannot die and cannot leave service. He has a blood oath to the family that can never be broken. You know these dark truths already, and so you as the dungeon master are going to feel this glorious foreboding as the players approach this house. Now, maybe <coughs> excuse me. Maybe you don't want to do the adventure quite like I did where such a dungeon crawl. So remember, you do have the entire manor to play with before they go into the chapel where the the floor crumbles and drops them into the dungeon. So if you wanted to reveal bedrooms and a dining room and have very little happen, not a lot of confrontation and danger, maybe just meeting the caretaker and getting a glimpse of the daughter and that's it. But exploring rooms in a freeform way where players are allowed to make left and right turns, open doors, look in spaces, right? Do all that kind of stuff just to build the foreboding. If you have that time in your game and you enjoy that type of gameplay, you have all that opportunity in the house and then plop into the dungeon and stuff starts getting crazy. But you will be able to run all that material because you know these whole truths. Right the whole truth is is telling me things already I can see it in my mind. First of all there's a little girl's room. That's creepy. Then there is the master's room, right? There's a master bedroom. What what happened to his wife? <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm dying. What happened to Aldis's wife? You have to wonder. And maybe there's a painting of her, you know, this sort of sad painting of her. Then you have the caretaker. Well, he's going to need a little shed and then there's sort of a servants' kitchen. And there's a dining room, and then there's a great hall for welcoming. And like, I could easily whip this map up just because some of the whole truth elements that I determined about the NPCs are now creating a map for me. And this is just what I call mining your assumptions or mining what might be. And this is what I do with players a lot is they'll say, oh, I bet that's a blah, blah, blah. And in my notes, I'll be like, ooh, good idea. I'll take that. That is now the truth. But again, I just wanted to muse with you for a few minutes about what deeper truths could lie inside Hell's Hearth. Now, this doesn't even get into the deeper and crazier stuff, which is like why this fireplace is even here in the first place. Did Asmodeus create this? Did a human being create this? Was there a ritual that opened this portal? Is there a ritual that can close it? So many questions have so many interesting answers, and those answers are your path to creating a bitchin' night of D&D. Thanks for tuning in, you guys. This is Ingrid Bernall, also known as and Fernale, up in here in the northern Runeham area, hanging out in the small town of Barholm. And it's great to have all you guys around. Again, thank you very much for your ongoing support. I hope you guys enjoy these podcasts. Lord knows I love making them, and I'm going to keep them coming because, man, I'm just getting started. Woo-wee. Winter's coming, and you know what that means. Time for D&D. So uh, I'll see you guys on the Internet. May your dice roll high. Strength, honor, and beer. Until next time, Hank Inferno signing off.